Lord, we do agree with that and the other prayers that we lift up to you. We know that you know all these things ahead of time, that you're sovereign, and you know, yet at the same time you listen to us and desire that communicate with you. We praise you for that. You have no need for us or your our prayers, but we do know that you use them. Puzzling how you... We praise you and thank you, and we desire this morning also that our minds might be attuned to you and that we'd be in fellowship, if it hinders that, that we confess that uh, right now, and maximize what you have for us this morning. Commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we're going to continue looking at truth, revelation of truth. From the book of Romans, I gave you a little bit of an introduction to truth and what it is all about. And I'd like to continue in that. This is one of the central passages of all of Scripture that lays out this concept of truth. So it's very important that we understand it. So that's what we will focus in on today. Continuing from uh, last week, I didn't quite complete verse 19, so we'll look at it. It's on one outline sheet, and then we'll get into the first part of verse 20, which is on the new outline sheet. So if you're following along on it, we're obviously in the major section that talks about God providing righteousness for mankind, and there's always good news and bad news when it comes to this provision of righteousness. We need to know the bad news first, that we stand condemned. Verse 18 says we're under wrath, and then Paul is going to explain what that means. So we are condemned, that's the bad news, before he can get into the good news, before he can give us, because if we're not aware of our condition, then we're not interested in the good news. So he has to convince us of that, and that's what he's doing. So he's showing the guilt of humanity. 18 through 32, the first chapter here. And essentially because mankind has rejected God. That's verses 18 through 23. And then verses 18 and 19, where we're at this morning, God has revealed himself adequately, and we're going to see to all men, and therefore man is accountable. And then in verse 19, he's going to give the reasons why God pours out wrath because man rejects that revelation. We looked at verse 18, and we're going to continue in verse 19, the reasons for God's wrath. Just the big picture here again, just so you're reminded and get the context. Verse 18, mankind under wrath. And then the second half of the sentence starts in 19, where he's going to begin giving reasons for that wrath. The essence of it, man has rejected God's revelation. That revelation is adequate, so we're looking at that revelation, that truth. And then in verse 24, he begins to talk about how that wrath can be seen, or the rendering of that wrath, and he spends from 24 through 32. So that's kind of the big picture. So we're into the section dealing with reasons for wrath. And just another review here. The main clause for the wrath of God is revealed... Wrath is revealed, subject and verb. Wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's the independent clause. Everything else is telling us something about whatever's in that main clause, independent clause. Everything's telling us about the wrath. That's the subject. Everything's telling about the revealing of that wrath. 
So the pink there, if it shows up, are all kind of introductory words to subordinate clauses that just add to the idea of the wrath of God being revealed. Who's it revealed against? Unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. We looked at that last time. And then he gives a reason. Because. Why? Well, he's going to say, because that which. Now here we have a subordinate clause within a subordinate clause. In fact, it acts more like a subject there. Because that which is known about God, subordinate clause, all of that is evident within them another subordinate clause or a continuation of that subordinate clause. And then another subordinate clause, for God made it evident to them. In the sense that he's saying then that, that he's the he, of men, a certain group, or all men. All men. We emphasize, we emphasize that when we talked about against all ungodliness, and if there's any man that is exempt from ungodliness, is there any? Okay. So all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, generic or mankind, who suppress the truth, is there any exception to those that suppress the truth? Just that one, Jesus Christ, the sinless one. And he's also going to emphasize it as we go through. Everyone has also received that revelation. We'll make that point as well. So that's kind of the sentence in a thumbnail sketch. Last week, I was giving you kind of the issue of truth, what truth is all about. In order to kind of put away the false doctrines of our culture, the false attitudes of our culture, we have to look at the nature of truth. And I kind of jumped off of uh, Pilate's question when Jesus lays out truth, and he's bearing witness to the truth Pilate says, what is truth? And that's where our culture is. What is it? I mean, what? who cares? And is it real? Well, there are different views that are prominent in our culture. We looked at those in contrast to the biblical view on truth. So I gave you a little of that. We start with the source of it. And we saw that not only God, John 3.33, the Father is truth. God is true. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is truth. That's absolute truth. Our culture denies the existence of it. Even those in the sciences know that scientific truth is not absolute. They they may say that it's a close approximation, but they would not claim that scientific truth is absolute. Because it's not. No scientist would claim that. It's always changing. Absolute truth does not change. Jesus Christ... God the Father is truth, and you might expect that there's passages that refer to the Holy Spirit as truth. That is absolute truth. So absolute truth does, in fact, exist. We also saw that the Word of God, John 17, 17, and a lot of other passages, hundreds of passages, speak of the Word of God as truth. That is absolute truth. We don't always understand it. We don't always perceive it. Sometimes we distort it. But it's there. In other words, it is available. Absolute truth is available to us in God's word. And if you look anywhere else, it's nowhere else. Satan, John 8.44, we looked at that. There's no truth in him. He's a liar from the beginning. When it comes to mankind, truth in man, Romans 3.4, man is a liar. Man is not 
He's not the source of absolute truth. It comes from God, only God. So he is absolute truth. So man distorts it, man uh, denies it, man flees it. We looked at all those passages, all kinds of passages referring to our attitude. You can sum all that up by the little phrase that Paul uses. We are all suppressors of the truth. And you can even see it in your personal life, even as a believer, now that you even have come into a relationship with absolute truth, we still sometimes have a hard time reading this book because we don't want to listen to what it has to say or we disobey it. That's a form of suppressing the truth. So we are suppressors of the truth. So when it comes to you and I, and that includes even scientists, we're going to see that. Scientists that observe certain things, I'm not going to get that till next week, but verse 20 is going to emphasize that the ones that should be the first to recognize absolute truth are those that are observing it, that are observing the natural realm, because there's revelation there. They should be the first to recognize that there's an awesome God. And when they don't recognize that and fall for the alternative, evolution, for example, they are suppressing the truth. So that's mankind. Well, this is what we do to it. We shatter it, not just Hillary. And in the verse that we're going to look at starts this whole idea of knowing truth. In fact, to kick that off, somebody look up 1 Timothy 2.4, and then we'll get into the passage there. Who's got it real quickly? Connie? Um, knowing truth. So I'm going to start in three to the sentence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved unto the knowledge of the truth. What does God desire? He desires salvation. And from that, in other words, that's the prerequisite to be able to understand absolute truth. But the second part of that, not only salvation, but that all come to know the truth. This is God's desire. He desires that we know truth. Which imply, or more than implies, it states more overtly that we can understand truth. It's available. It's possible. Postmodernism says that you can't arrive at truth. In fact, truth is elusive. Truth is not real. And it's relative. Your truth is different from my truth. Remember the quotes that we looked at last time. Well, the Bible says you can know truth and God desires that we know truth. All right? So that's kind of the starting point. So, verse 19, because that, in other words, the wrath is revealed because that which is known. In other words, here's a statement. This is absolute truth, by the way. A statement that mankind knows certain things. Man has certain knowledge built in by creation, by the way. Little children have it innately in them. It's part of their creation, part of being formed in the image of God. They have truth, even as little babies. You can even observe it. You can see the beginning, because they're also sinners, you also see the beginning of the suppression of truth. And when people suppress the truth long enough, they convince themselves that there's no God. But in reality, there's no such thing as an atheist because every single person has truth. That which is known, the ability to know certain things. In other words, the ability to assimilate in your thinking concepts relating to God and other concepts as well. 
but particularly that which is known. This is a word that is not real common. Known about God. Let's take a look at that word, the idea of knowing. It's part of a word that occurs, or it's it's a form of a word that is very common in uh, New Testament, the Greek form. It's very common in the Old Testament. In fact, if you do a study on that, you're going to find out there's just hundreds of verses that speak of things that we can know. And things in terms of the unseen world that we can know. And particularly believers have access to absolute truth. We can know those things. So that's the reality. That's the biblical view of knowledge. It is knowable. And God himself is knowable. Now I'm going to talk about the incomprehensibility of God as well. Both of those are true. And this passage even hints at it because that's what we're going to look at in a moment in verse 20. Here's the form, nostos or nostos. Got the English word there. And you, you can already figure out what English word do we get from nostos? Knowledge comes from this Greek word, which is related to ginosko, which is the verb form that is very common. And the verb form is to know something. Very frequent in the in the Bible, both in the Hebrew and the Greek. So something known, a noun form, something known or capable of being known, or something that is intelligible, the mind is able to grasp it, assimilate it, it's knowledge, it's it's available, the idea of knowing something. We can know, in fact, here's a passage that speaks of knowing the significance of miracles. Somebody look up Acts 9.42. There's another passage, spiritual truth. Now this is very important. Because there's a distinction between spiritual truth that is unobservable. Scientists do not have access to spiritual truth apart from just the general public. In other words, when they study truth, they're studying truth that God has revealed through the natural realm. Not necessarily spiritual. So they're not studying spiritual truth. But spiritual truth is, in fact, available. And and there's some other passages that refer to that. Now, I'm giving you verses that only have nostos, which only occurs about 14 times, I can't remember, in the New Testament, 15 times. Missed it by one. So the, the noun form only occurs 15 times. The verb form, over 200 times in the New Testament. And I didn't count the equivalent in the, the Old Testament, but I'm sure there's at least that many as well. So, somebody got 942. Connie, uh, 13, okay, you got it? It became known throughout all Java and Okay, about the miracle of Tabitha. In other words, God demonstrated miraculous power through the disciples, and it became known throughout, where? Joppa. By the way, those of you that are going to Israel, that's going to be one of the first stops that we make. Joppa. Is that Tel Aviv? It's in Tel Aviv, yes. Yep. So, not only the miracles, but those miracles stirred people so that they had a knowledge of them and a connection with the God that, in fact, brought those miracles about. Spiritual truth, just one example, Acts 13, 38. Got it? Let it be known to you. What? That through you. 
Okay, for the concept of forgiveness of sin, spiritual truth. You get that? Let it be known. In other words, it is knowable. It is comprehensible. It is intelligible. We can understand it. We can grasp it. And in order to grasp forgiveness of sins, we also have an awareness of sin, an awareness of our lostness, an awareness that there's something wrong, particularly with us spiritually, apart from Jesus Christ. So, spiritual truth. This is not discernible by observation. It's not observable by scientific testing or even by philosophy. This is spiritual truth. This is also absolute truth. It's knowable. Got it? And God himself, that's verse 19, the verse that we're looking at. That which is known about God. God is knowable. We have the ability... In fact, this verse is going to say, a built-in knowledge. Very interesting. And by the way, this is what we describe as general revelation. We're going to look at special revelation later, but there's this concept that theologians call general revelation. And what we mean by general revelation, it's revelation that is given to all of humanity. So you can't think of a person, and this passage is going to develop that, you can't think of a person that has not had access to this revelation over all time. In fact, verse 20 says, since the creation, since Adam and Eve, this general revelation has been going on. And we're going to see other little notes that indicate that every single person in every age at every time has received general revelation. And this is the starting point right here, what we have in verse 19. Very, very important. So, first of all, our tendency, verse 18 has already told us, our tendency is to suppress that revelation. That's mankind. That's man in sin. That's man because of the fall, because of our relationship, obviously, to Adam. We are suppressors of truth. That's our tendency In fact, even as believers, we continually battle against that. We battle time to read the Word, to read absolute truth. We battle the obedience to that truth. That's a form of suppression of that truth. Not wanting to abide by what God has revealed. That's suppression. That's our tendency. And then verse 19, that truth is knowable. It's knowable, and in fact, it is known. It is already known. It's already built in. And as we learn and as we renew our minds, as Paul encourages, and both in Romans and also in Ephesians, as we renew our minds with this truth, we come into a further knowledge of God's truth, of absolute truth. So it's knowable. Because that which is known about God is evident. What does that tell you? It's obvious, or another way of saying it, it's clear. It's manifest. And the word there, evident, phaneras is the Greek word. It could be translated evident like it is in this passage, or in some other context it has the idea of something that that is made known and unmistakable, or something that is visible in the physical realm. To make something known is, oh, okay, I'm going to show you what this is. 
I'm going to show you the parts of it. I'm going to show you how it works. Something visible, something visible, something obvious. Another usage of the word, Galatians 5.19. Who wants to look that one up? Jacob, 1 John 3.10. This is where we have this particular word in these contexts. Who's got it? All right. Galatians 5.19. Jacob. 5.19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Evident. There it is. Which are adultery, fornication, etc., etc. And you can keep reading, and he's going to give a long list of those works of the flesh. In other words, what comes out of sinful man? It's evident. You see it all around you. You see it in yourself. Obvious. It's clear. Same word. Terry, you got First uh, John three ten. This is how we know. This is how we know this word here. Who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is obvious. This is visible. This is what can be known. You can tell from the external performance, basically. That's the word here. That's the word that we have here. In other words, this revelation is a clear revelation. It is an obvious revelation. It is an innate revelation, you might even say. It's a built-in revelation. Make sense? So it's a clear revelation. General revelation is clear enough, we could say. It's evident in this context. And notice, it's within them. What does that mean? It's internal, for one, but what do you think the reference is here? He doesn't use the word, but he's referring to something that I think is somewhat clear. Within them. Conscience. Yep. Conscience. It's built within our soul. Hardwired. Hardwired. Very good. Like the electronic illustration. Built in, hardwired. The truth about God is hardwired into every person that has ever lived on the face of the earth. It is internal. And only God can put it there. That's what the next part of it says. But within them, conscience, and if you look at the next chapter, it's internal, and I think it refers to conscience. I think it's described in uh, 2.14 and 15. Who wants to read those two verses? You guys are slow at reading today. Connie again. He's talking about, in that community, Gentiles were the unbelievers. They were outside of the family of God, if you will, outside of Israel. He's going to describe them. And in this context, he's showing to the Jewish community, within all of humanity, the Jews, they stand condemned. And he's using the unbeliever of that day, the outcast of that day, as an illustration. Sorry, uh, read it again. But when the Gentiles who do not have law, by nature things chained in law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. The Gentiles, they don't have the law. Israel had the law. Who show the work of the law written in their conscience, also bearing to themselves their thoughts, accusing or else. Okay, God has put within all of mankind a sense of the law. That's why before Moses, people were still accountable to God. The law only made God's standards, God's righteousness, right and wrong, just made it evident, put it down in writing. But it was already hardwired inside, and it refers to conscience there. So everyone has a conscience. 
Now, the Bible talks about us searing our conscience and hardening our conscience such that we suppress the truth so that now we have like a calloused conscience unless we renew our minds and renew our souls, basically, with the Word of God. So that's what that internal, for that internal revelation lies. It's within us, within what's called conscience. A sense. Everyone has a sense of right and wrong. Everyone has a sense of God's standards. It's hardwired in, using Mary Lee's illustration there. And if that's not enough, for God made it evident to them. The omnipotent God, the all-wise God, the God that is the creator God, when he created mankind, built it in. It's programmed into the DNA, you might even say. Mankind has knowledge, that which is known about God. It's internal, it's within the conscience. God made it happen. Make sense? The conclusion we can come to that, and we'll expand upon it, but basically every human being that has ever lived, no matter where they are, has a revelation from God. He's going to expand that in verse 20. It's going to go into more detail there. And then he's going to come to a little conclusion at the end of verse 20. Therefore, what? Without excuse. So there's not a human being on the face of the earth that can stand before God and say to him, I didn't have enough revelation. I didn't know. I'm unaware. I didn't know about your standards. I didn't know about the reality that you had to be out there. You had to exist. They may not know the the special revelation of Jesus Christ, but it is my thought in terms of the overall scriptures, if a person responds to the revelation that God has hardwired, God is, just as he makes things evident to people, so also with that same power will make sure that that individual hears the gospel in some way, even directly. And I've heard of examples where God reveals himself directly in a special way. But the point being here, God is the one that made it evident to them. And by the way, this word, made evident, is the same verbal form as the noun up here. Same word in the Greek text. One's the noun, the other one's the verb. Phaneras is the noun form. Phanerao is the verb form. Okay, phanerao, to make known or to make evident. You could even say to make obvious, to make clear, to make understandable, to manifest it. In other words, to make it visible, to bring it to the surface. It's describing all of humanity here. Once look at Colossians 3, 4. You have the verbal form there. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Someone else. Who's got first one? Mark, you got Colossians 3, 4. 1 Timothy 3, 16. Ginny? Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with us. The word revealed is panerao. Now that looks to the second coming when Christ will be revealed. Every eye shall see. Christ is going to be manifested. Christ is going to be revealed. Christ is going to be made obvious. There's no one going to miss the second coming. No one's going to miss it because it's manifest. It's going to be made known. Or you might even say, like in that translation, revealed. 
And notice the second part, we will be revealed as well. In other words, who we truly are in Christ. That's going to be made manifest. We're going to see one another in a way that we've never seen each other before. We're going to see the reality of the new nature that we can't see right now because of all the gray hair and the wrinkles and everything else. All right? That's the word. 1 Timothy 3.16. Jenny. The common confession, great is the mystery. He who was revealed in the flesh was seen by angels and believed on in the glory. That refers to Jesus Christ revealed in the flesh. What that means, that's the incarnation. In other words, God made himself seen or visible in physical form. Everybody that lived in the first century and wanted to see Jesus Christ could have shaken his hand. said, my name is such and such. Glad to know you, Jesus Christ. Because he was standing right there. He's revealed in the flesh. Same word. The idea of something be made known. And this is the function of Jesus in the first coming, is to make the Father known. And you can see what the Father is like by knowing Jesus Christ or seeing him not only in the first century, but now we have the written word that describes all about Jesus Christ. That's the word that we have in this passage. And God is the one that makes himself known to every man. That's verse 19. Tremendous passage. So, understood, this is implanted, just another way of saying the same thing, hardwired, built in, because God is the one that has done it. That's also verse 19. These are some of the characteristics of general revelation. We tend to suppress it, but it is truth. It is knowable. It is clear. It is internal, some of it. Some of it, we're going to see some external revelation as well, but it's internal in this passage in verse 19. It is understood. You can't say, well, I didn't quite get it. I didn't quite understand it. No excuses. General revelation comes in different forms. This passage emphasizes conscience. We just looked at chapter 2 of Romans 14 and 15. What other ways does God reveal himself besides conscience? In a general sense, where all of humanity has access to. Nature, creation. That's verse 20. Beautiful. Yep. Yep. The heavens declare... In other words, broadcast the glory of God. Anyone remember that passage? Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's general revelation. There's another way that God has revealed himself. Very important, general revelation that everyone has access to. Three major ways. Conscience, internal. History, in the times that God has intervened in history, Those are all revelations of God in a general way. People have access to history, events that took place in the past. Now, some may not read history, but it's available for man to know that God has acted, and the Bible is a revelation of those historical acts. But some of those historical acts have left such an impression on all cultures, like the Genesis Flood, Every culture has a flood story, every culture that we know of, because that left an impression. And that flood story, even though it's been distorted in a lot of cultures, speaks of the intervention of a God that destroyed the whole world. 
So there's something of God that is revealed in historical events, God's interventions. And the third one there, I don't have it on this slide because I'm going to bring this slide back up, uh, through the creation or the natural realm. So verse 20, let's start off with it, a complete sentence, one sentence. We won't complete this. There's a lot in it. We'll look, come back and look at it next week. For since, and notice the four, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. What is the independent clause there? They are. No, no, because that's introduced by that. So that, say that again. All those things before, those things we see. Very good. His invisible attributes, you could include his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. Independent clause. Very good. Very good. That's the independent clause. There you go. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. That's the essence of everything that he's saying in that verse. Narrow it down to the subject and the verb. What is the subject? Uh, How about attributes? And invisible describes attributes. His tells who they belong to. Attributes. What's the verb? Have been seen. And then clearly is an adverb in there. So there you go. Attributes have been seen. Everything in there tells us that attributes have been seen. Everything else just adds to it and tells us a little bit more about it. We have a time frame for since the creation of the world, these attributes have been seen. And they're not only seen, but they've been clearly seen. And we have kind of uh, examples of two attributes, you might say, eternal power and divine nature, telling us about attributes. And the seeing part being understood, so it's not just visibly, in other words, it's not, not only with your eyes, but it impacts your thinking, being understood through what has been made, long phrase to describe the creation, in other words, things that are created, and then we have a closing subordinate clause so that they are without excuse. So it all kind of tells us, uh, why are they without excuse? Because his attributes have been seen. See how sentences function? The only reason we do this is so we better understand what God is revealing, not because we're trying to make uh, grammarians out of everybody. Okay, so let's take a look at it. And we have a, it's not really a clause, it's more of a phrase, since the creation of the world, and you could even include the four. The four goes back to 19. He's going to expand on the reasons. The reasons is God has revealed, in other words, the wrath of God, he's building a case, and it starts with the reason is God has made himself evident, made himself clear, God has revealed himself, And he's going to expand on that revelation. And I call that revelation, on your outline sheet, there's two parts, revelation and rejection. And that includes 21. We won't get to that yet. But uh, put those two together because they seem to go together. Since creation of the world, so what we have here is this general revelation is constant. It's been going on constantly, day in, day out, every day, every night, every minute, every second, clicking away since the creation. Since God said, let there be light, there was light. Or, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, revelation was available. Now, there was no mankind to observe it, but it was available. 
Day six, mankind is created, male and female. From then, man has been able to observe and has been receiving general revelation. So no period of time has ever been excluded. No individual has ever been excluded from general revelation. So it's constant. And you can see it in the creation. And I'm going to give you a few examples next time how you can see it from the creation. In fact, I do a whole course called uh, Scientific Apologetics where God reveals himself through the creation. So Revelation, we have the extent of it since creation. That's verse 20. Since creation, his invisible attributes. Invisible attributes. It's kind of interesting here. We have kind of a contrast. Verse 19 says, these things are evident. These things are clear. God has made them evident. And the things that he's made evident are invisible. Can't see them. That kind of gives us the other side of the coin. And the Bible is equally clear in saying that God is incomprehensible. So let's develop that idea in closing here. So the extent is since creation. Uh, let's talk about the incomprehensibility of God. This is a biblical doctrine, a biblical teaching. And what this means is that mankind on his own has no capability of knowing God. Man in himself has no capability of knowing God or understanding God. The key word there is what? On his own. On his own. A few words. Thank you, Connie. <laughs> Betty. Oh, Mary, I just went through that it's, it's built in. But we have, no- we have no way of putting it together and assimilating it and understanding it and even understanding it comprehensively. But it's been made known. And that, that's the only reason that we have access to it, because God has made it known. But apart from God, we would have no clue. Yeah, we can know God, but we can't understand him. The gulf is too large. And that's why eternal life is eternal, because that's how long it takes. And we'll never exhaust him. That's right. Yep, exactly. Incomprehensible. So let's take a look at this concept. And I'll give you some verses. Connie. Of the invisible attributes. When I've read that in the past, I think of his organization. All of those things you can't, you can't see that right. Kathy's a nice person, but look at her creation, her house, you can see that she's God. Right. You know, look at yes. nature. So those attributes of God that reveal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what it takes is spiritual perception. It takes spiritual perception. Jenny. And, well, I thought when I, how he did because that sunset was all the way around glorious. Yes. And that was such a... Yeah. But you have an eye to see it. Because God has not only put that the truth of him inside of you, but now that you are regenerated and know him, you can see and you can discern the only way that this could be is by a creator that put it all together. Linda. On the other side of the coin, there's... Horrible what? Floods. Floods. You should look at them. I thought it's just like it's just the water's just coming out, and huge amounts, whole buildings being washed away, cars just. Yeah. If you Google floods, you'll see it's amazing. Yeah. So that those are local not, floods. I, that's what I'm saying. But it looks yeah. like it, it looks like it's just coming. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. 
Yeah, that's power in a frightening way. Yeah, yeah that's power displayed. Yeah. Your point is that's another manifestation of God. Exactly. That's uh, yep. you see incomprehensibly large power. Yeah, that's beyond us. Okay, real quickly, I've got these up on the slide here. Here's just a few passages that speak of the incomprehensibility of God. Job, or in the book of Job 11.7, can you discover the depths of God? The implied answer to that is what? No. No, because God is incomprehensible. Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? No, because he has no limits. He's limitless. He is infinite. There's passages that indicate that. We will never exhaust an understanding of God. We cannot probe the depths. We cannot discover the limits because there are no limits. He's incomprehensible. We can't even conceive of that. Here's a statement. A.W. Tozier describes the incomprehensibility as he is not exactly like anything or anybody that we have a concept of. He's totally different, totally outside of anything that we can relate to, to understand. He's incomprehensible. Another theologian, this is W.G.T. Shedd, some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence. Because God is infinite in everything about him. He has infinite knowledge. We call that omniscience. He has infinite power. We call that omnipotence. He has uh, infinite presence. He's present everywhere in the universe. We call that omnipresence. Okay. Every aspect of God, he's infinite. He has infinite love. He has infinite compassion, infinite grace. So, some of the characteristics of the divine nature cannot be known by a finite intelligence. We do not have the capability of exhausting and even grasping. Mary Lee. He commented that he has, you know, infinite love. He also has infinite wrath. Yes. Very good. Yep. Psalm 139.6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. The psalmist recognizes the incomprehensibility of God. Cannot attain it. Romans 11, uh, the conclusion to this great section dealing with God's provision. After Paul lays it all out, he falls down on his face and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable. In other words, I can't exhaust it. The little bit that I've written in eight chapters, it's unfathomable. Unfathomable are his judgments and and unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. They're beyond our comprehension. And by the way, he's quoting out of an Old Testament passage there. Matthew 11, 27, notice what Jesus says. And no one knows the Son. We cannot know the Son except the Father. The, The only one that has comprehensive knowledge is the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father. We can't know the Father. We can't know God, basically. Except the Son. Jesus has comprehensive knowledge of the Father. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. That's the only way that God is knowable is by Him revealing Himself. And He's done it. And He's done it in terms of general revelation to every single person, and then in specific or special revelation 
in his word and in Jesus Christ. Mary Lee. I'm telling you that this knowing the Father and the Son that is infinite is one of the stumbling points for those who don't want to accept him because to know someone gives you power. Us finite creatures cannot know, know as we've been using the word and <coughs> wrap our arms around his infinity. And so... That, that can create a stumbling block for those who exalt their own intelligence, I guess I would say, because they want to, I want to know. I want to know so that mm-hmm. I have power over that. Like, you know, I know, I don't know mathematics. Other people know mathematics. Yeah. Because I can manipulate numbers and do things. But God is far beyond our ability right. to know and manipulate. Yeah, and Paul's going to expand upon that as we get further into this text in Romans 1. He's incomprehensible. In other words, on our own, we do not have the capability of grasping and knowing God, and certainly not comprehensively. But he desires, and the Son reveals, general revelation reveals, so that God is knowable. We can understand something of God. So let's conclude with this verse. Jeremiah 9, and it just kind of reinforces God's desire. Uh, 9, 23, and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. In other words, all your PhDs, don't boast in that. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. If you own a corporation, don't boast in that. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Most of you are rich, right? Don't boast in that. Let him boast. He who boasts, boasts of this. That he what? Understands and knows God. So that, this is his desire. This is what he wants. He wants us to even boast about it. Okay? That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, chesed, grace, you could put in there, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things. He delights in us probing who he is and understanding who he is, but it is always through revelation. It is always as a result of God taking the initiative and God, in fact, illuminating our minds and our hearts. And he wants us to renew our, our minds. So he delights in these things and to make it clear, declares the Lord. Just a closing thought. The greatest knowledge we can have is not medical knowledge, not scientific knowledge, not rocket science, but the knowledge of God. Who wants to close for it? Bob. Father, we do delight in you and word and are so grateful for to ourselves of some of your glory, your truth, your perfection. Ask that you will give us grace this week. Live as children who in a flawed way can bring the light of Jesus. Amen.